Welcome to Spiritual Gold, the teaching ministry of Dr. Richard L. Strauss. I'm Dr. Mark Strauss, and these podcasts represent the faithful exposition of God's Word by my father through his 21-year ministry at Emmanuel Faith Community Church. Our prayer is that through these messages, you would be encouraged and equipped in your walk with the Lord. Begin the second half of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. In the first half, he has taught us great doctrines of the faith. Now he's going to tell us how to live. He's going to apply these doctrines to life and take these principles that he's taught us and show us how we ought to act in light of them. In the first half of the book, we learn the believer's position in Christ. In the second half of the book, chapters 4, 5, and 6, we learn about the believer's practice. In the first three chapters, we had doctrine defined. Now, in the last three chapters, our doing is described. Our wealth was portrayed in the first half of the book, and our walk is prescribed in the second half of the book. We've studied the church's calling, and now we want to talk about the church's conduct. And in the chapters that remain, Paul is going to zero right in on our lives and show us how to live. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation to which you are called. That's our calling. We've studied it. We've seen it. We've learned what we have and what we are in Jesus Christ. We've seen in these chapters we've been chosen in him and accepted in him. We've been adopted and we've been redeemed. And we've been made heirs and we've been sealed and we've been made alive in Jesus Christ. And we've been reconciled and we've been brought near and we've been made members of his body and we've been made parts of his building and we've been given access into his presence on the basis of all that we are and all that we have in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want you to walk worthy, worthy of that calling to which you were called. So from this point on in the book, we're going to talk about our actions on the basis of our calling. Now, I think that's very important to understand because knowledge of God's word, and knowledge of the doctrine of God's word that does not issue in obedient living is really folly. I mean, to have all kinds of biblical facts in our brain cells and not let them affect our lives is to miss the import and the, the reason God gave us his word. Right doctrine is to result in right living. Of course, the other side of that coin is, is equally important. I've heard people say, I don't want to hear anything about doctrine. Just, just let me get on with my Christian life. What you believe isn't very important. It's how you live that counts. Wait a minute. People who say things like that are ignorant of how God the Holy Spirit really does work in our lives. It's impossible to go on living, ultimately, as God wants us to live, unless we know what God wants us to, to know. And right living must be based on right doctrine. So you really can't get into the practice until you learn the position we have in Jesus Christ. When we understand the first three chapters, we're ready to go on and learn how to live in the light of those doctrines God has taught us. Now, there are four basic things in the chapters that remain that should characterize our lives as believers, our conduct as Christians. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, it is to be a conduct of unity. In chapter 4, 17 through 5, 14, it is to be a conduct of purity. 
in chapter 5, 15 through chapter 6, 9 is to be a conduct of ministry. Ministry to one another in the body and ministry to one another in the home, in the marital relationship and with parents and children. And likewise, employers and employees. And then in chapter 6, verses 10 to 20 is to be a ministry or to be a conduct of victory. And that's, of course, the great passage on our triumph over Satan. So let's look at our conduct as the Apostle Paul describes it. A conduct of unity, of purity, of ministry, and of victory. We're just going to begin the first one, unity. Tonight in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. We are encouraged to walk worthy of the vocation with which we are called. And that walk is to be with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, and endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of love. The subject before us tonight is unity, harmony, oneness, concord, love, peace in the body of Christ. We see in the first six verses the plea for unity. We see in verses 7 to 11 the provision for unity. God's provision of spiritual gifts. And we see in verses 12 to 16 the perfection of unity. Those gifts operating in the local church to bring us all to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's where we're going in the weeks to come. Tonight, let's talk about the first six verses of chapter 4. Paul's plea for unity. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you, I beg you that you walk worthy of the calling to which you are called. Paul's the prisoner, not only of Rome, but of Jesus Christ. A willing, voluntary prisoner of the Lord Jesus. And he begs the Ephesians and he begs us. He beseeches us. He pleads with us. He doesn't command us or threaten us. See, that's the basic difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are many differences. But one important difference is that in the Old Testament, God says, obey me and I will bless you. In the New Testament, God says, I have blessed you. Look at all I've done. Look at your position and your possessions in Christ. Now, in appreciation and gratitude to me, please obey me. And the love we have for him grows when we understand what he's done for us, where we are in him. And because our love for him grows, our desire to please him increases and we obey him. Not because we have to, not just to earn a reward, not to get blessed necessarily, though that blessing will be there. We do it because we love him. And so the plea is there. I plead with you, Paul says, <clears throat> as the prisoner of the Lord, that you walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. It's interesting that he likens our Christian life to a walk. It's not the only place in the Bible that's done, but it is an important concept. Ruth Paxson, in her very helpful commentary on Ephesians called The Wealth, Walk, and Warfare of the Christian, has something to say about the Christian life likened to a walk. Let me read it to you. She says, to walk indicates motion. There are many words that indicate motion, such as leap, run, float, drift, creep, but you cannot substitute one of them for the word walk. To walk implies purpose, starting for a goal, progress, Steady advancing step by step toward the goal. And perseverance, keeping on until the goal is reached. Walking stands for steady, sustained motion. And involves the action of the mind in the decision to start. And of the heart in the desire to continue. And in the will in the determination to arrive. 
It demands a set purpose, a steady progress, and a strong perseverance. Then she goes on to explain how difficult it is to maintain a steady and consistent Christian walk. It's much easier to float downstream with uh, the tide of nominal Christians. It's easier to drift along with lukewarm uh, worldliness of our day. It's easier to soar to heights and then drop back down into the valleys and have this up and down Christian experience. It's even easier to run to some task that, that seems to have preeminence and glory attached to it. But to walk, that's something different. Just to walk steady, perseveringly, with no stagnance and no slump, in a daily routine at home and in the office or in the shop or at school or in our social service. That's hard. Walk worthy of your calling, Paul says, the calling to which you are called. And do it with all lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearance, and endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of love. The ultimate goal of our walk in Christ, Paul says, is unity. Not uniformity, but unity. We are one body in Christ. We've already learned that in this epistle, both in chapter 1 and chapter 2. For instance, look across the page in chapter 2, verse 16. That he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. We are one body. We're one family. Verse 19, therefore we are no more strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens and saints and of the household of God. And we're one building, verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple of the Lord. We are all that. Now, we need to maintain, keep, guard, protect the unity of the Spirit in the bond of love. If I were to ask you, I won't do this, but if I were to ask you to take out a piece of paper and write down on that piece of paper what you think is the most important aspect of a Christian's conduct, I wonder what you would write down on that paper. I think different people would write different things. Some would probably say separation from worldliness. Others would probably say fellowship with God, Bible study, prayer, Bible memorization, all those things that are part of our daily fellowship with God. Others would probably say it's sharing your faith. It's witnessing. It's telling others about Christ. Others would say it's keeping ourselves from sin, from worldliness. It's interesting that when the Apostle Paul tells us at the very beginning of his exhortation to Christian conduct, the very first thing he mentions is unity. The unity of the Spirit. Oneness. He talks about peace. He talks about love. Unity, oneness, peace, and love. They're the things that he deems worthy of mentioning first. And that's rather consistent with what the Lord Jesus himself said. He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. My disciples. Not by how many hours you spend in Bible study and prayer. Not by how many people you witness to a week. Not by how many sins you don't commit. That's all important. I'm not belittling any of it. He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That was the supreme badge of Christian discipleship. He went on to say in chapter 17 of John, 
that all men would know that he was sent by the Father, if we were one, our oneness, our unity, our harmony would be a testimony to the world of the truthfulness of the Christian faith. Not the fact that we could perform miracles or do unusual, other unusual things. It would be that we are one. That's the evidence of the truthfulness of the Christian faith. And that's why the Apostle Paul starts with it. It's so very important. But how? How can we do it? It's so hard. We come from different backgrounds. We all have different ideas, different opinions. Our parents instill different values in us. We all have different abilities and different gifts. And we look at things from a different perspective and a different vantage point. How in the world can we be one? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us how we can be one. He gives us a formula for unity and harmony in the local church. It's a very important passage. I consider Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 6 to be of supreme importance in our relationships with one another and in the ministry to which God has called us together in this place. This is how we can be one. This is how we can have unity and harmony and love and peace and oneness and concord in the work of Jesus Christ. It's a five-fold formula. It starts out with having lowliness, verse 2, in all lowliness. That's the word sometimes translated lowliness of mind, other times simply translated humility. That's what it means, humility. That ought to be somewhat familiar to you after this morning's message. And I trust in the next few months it's going to be very, very familiar to you. It means no haughtiness or arrogance or vanity or egocentricity. No pride or conceit. No boasting in our accomplishments. Lowliness. Doesn't mean necessarily we're not as good as other people. It means, though, that we are willing to be treated as though we were not as good as other people. As Paul put it in Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, we looked at verse 3 this morning, but verse 10 says, in honor preferring one another. That's humility. Or as the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 that we talked about this morning, esteeming others to be better than oneself, considering them and treating them as though they are better than us. Maybe they're not. That doesn't really matter. That isn't the issue. We're willing to treat others as though they were better than ourselves. Our minds are really not occupied with ourselves at all when we're truly humble. They're occupied with the Lord. See, it isn't just treating other people, just thinking of other people before ourselves. It's not thinking of ourselves at all. When we get right down to its basic connotation, we really lose sight of self as we get a glimpse of the Lord and of the needs of other people. It's really taking our proper place before God, seeing ourselves in a true light as God reveals our hearts in his word. That's lowliness, humility. It's necessary for us to enjoy the unity of the spirit. It's not a common trait among us human beings. But it's something God wants us to claim his power to produce. Lowliness. Second, meekness. I want to spend at least one, maybe two, Sunday mornings on the whole subject of meekness. I won't say much about it right now. Except to say that it basically means gentleness in the face of abuse. Gentleness in the face of abuse. It's a lack of, of retaliation and vindictiveness and self-assertiveness and self-defensiveness. It's a, a refusal to demand our own way and our own rights. It's not fighting for our own opinion. Oh, it doesn't mean that 
We can't ever express our opinion. It means when we express it, we express it in love. And it means if other believers who really love the Lord and want His will are not in agreement with us, and in fact, we find ourselves to be in the minority on on an issue when other believers who love the Lord and want His will are on the other side of the fence, it means sit down and keep quiet. That's what it means. Not fighting for our opinion. Meekness. The third word, by the way, meekness. It's essential if we want to have unity. There's no way we can be one in purpose and goal and in our ministry for Jesus Christ unless we begin to have lowliness and meekness and thirdly, long-suffering. We've talked about that word on a number of occasions. It's that attribute of God whereby He holds back His temper. Long-tempered is what the word means. It doesn't mean we lose our temper and stay mad for a long time. It means it takes a long, long time for us to get angry. Long-suffering or long temper. It's patience with people who provoke us. The word endurance or patience in the Bible, as we point out on other occasions, refers to our, our patience with circumstances. That's never attributed to God. He controls the circumstances. He doesn't have to be patient with them. But God is long-suffering. He's patient with people because He gave people a will of their own and they provoke Him and they provoke us too. People are exasperating. It would be a great world if it weren't for people, wouldn't it? Just keep getting on our nerves and annoying us and getting exasperated and frustrated and all upset. But long-suffering means allowing people to criticize us or misrepresent us or disagree with us or misunderstand us or slight us and we don't get mad about it. We are long-suffering. We're not characterized by self-justification and indignant self-defense. We're characterized by a meekness and a gentleness and a long-suffering with those who provoke us. Lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, they're necessary. If we're ever to be one, if we're ever to enjoy the unity of God's Spirit... As the Apostle Paul put it, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, then we'll have to have lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, and we'll have to learn how to forbear one another in love. Forbear. It's an interesting word. It has the idea, basically, of putting up with one another. But it doesn't mean just grudgingly putting up with one another. It means joyfully and lovingly putting up with one another. Willingly accepting one another. Even if people disagree with us. It means holding in check uh, our our emotions when provocation comes. In that sense, it's a very similar word to long-suffering. But it's just lovingly accepting other people and doing it basically with that spirit of love, forbearing, putting up with one another in love, thinking of their good rather than our own. That's what love is. Considering their well-being before ourselves. Forbearing one another in love. And the fifth, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word endeavoring means being zealous or giving diligence. Putting ourselves into it. It's a, it's a word that really means to, to put effort forth. You see, we have this unity. We are one body in Christ. We are one building in Him. There is a built-in unity which is the basis of our unity in everyday living which we're going to talk about in just a moment, in verses 4 to 6. But now we have to work at maintaining that unity. And the word means to work at it. 
We don't always think about that, but it, it means giving attention to it. It's just not going to happen, folks. Say, well, yeah, we're one body in Christ. Yeah, it's great. We're one. So naturally, we'll get along with each other in harmony and love and unity and oneness and peace. No, we won't. Because we still have that old sin nature. And it still rises up in protests against one another. And resists one another and retaliates with vindictiveness at times. And gets ornery and irritated and upset. And all those things. Gets proud and haughty. And consequently, there isn't that. You know, we've got to work at it. Endeavoring to keep. That word keep means to guard, to protect. That unity is there. It's built into the body. But we've got to work to protect it. And to maintain it. And to keep it. And to hold on to it. From the beginning of the church. Or in the early church. At any rate. They did this. I, I'll leaf through these passages on other occasions. But hold your place in Ephesians 4. And go back just a moment will you. And leaf through them again with me. Acts chapter 1. Verse 14. It's such an emphasis in the book of Acts. It's impossible to read that book and miss the oneness of the early church. They did what Paul exhorted the church at Ephesus to do. They maintained the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So they obviously had to work at it. It's the only way to do it. They endeavored. They strived. They gave all diligence to it. But in Acts 1.14 it says, These all considered with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women. They were with one accord. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, it says, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their food with gladness and singleness of heart. Again, one accord. In chapter 4 and verse 32, it says, and the multitude of those that believe were of one accord or of one heart and one soul. They were of one heart and one soul. In chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. How many times it's, it's repeated through the book of Acts. They were one. They endeavored to protect the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And of course the result was God's blessing. It was power and souls and growth and multiplication. Look at the results of it through the book of Acts. Chapter 2, verse 47. It says, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. People were coming to know Christ every day. Over in chapter 5, verse 14. It says, and believers were the more added to the Lord. Multitudes, both of men and women. And then all the way over in chapter 9. And verse 31. says it again. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplied. The result of unity. Was God's blessing. I'm of the opinion, folks, that this is probably the basic need of the church. One commentator said the prerequisite for a revival in the church of Jesus Christ is unity among the brethren. And I'm inclined to agree with him. If there's one thing that keeps us from a full outpouring of God's power and God's blessing, it will be these little things that cause tension and conflict between us that we aren't willing to resolve, but we allow to remain. 
We want God's power. We want God's blessing. We will need to be warmed. That's the burden on Paul's heart. If I were to give the first three verses of the chapter a title, it would be the burden of the plea. The next three verses would be the basis of the plea. Would you look at them briefly, please? The reason we can be one in practice is because we are one in position. There are seven existing unities in the church of Jesus Christ. And that becomes the basis for our unity and experience. Here's what I want you to do. Verses 1 to 3. And you can do it because of verses 4 to 6. There is one body. Only one. Jesus Christ doesn't have two bodies. He just has one. And every true believer is a part of that body. We are all members of the body of Christ, Paul said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 5. I didn't quote it quite accurately. He said, so we being many are one body in Christ and all members one of another. Every one members one of another. We're all one body. All of us. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've acknowledged your sin and trusted Him as the one who can forgive you of sin and give you everlasting life, then you're one. You're in one body. There is only one. The many parts to the body, just as a physical body has many parts. All the parts of the body are different. My ear is different from my kneecap. My tooth is different from my little fingernail. All the parts of the body are different. But they all have a function to perform and they work together. And the reason my body works together is because it's one. And it's all under the control of my head. And that's the only way the body of Christ can work together. If we realize we are one. We are different. We have different gifts and abilities. We come from different backgrounds. We look at things from a different perspective. But we're all part of one body. And because we are of one body, we can work together in Christian love and unity. And experience God's power and God's blessing. We are one body. That's why unity is possible. In our everyday experience. Because in fact we are one body. Secondly. There is one spirit. Only one. The Holy Spirit of God. And the scripture teaches us. That he indwells every single one of us as believers. Doesn't indwell unbelievers. Only believers. So if you know Jesus Christ as your personal savior. The same spirit dwells in you. As dwells in me. And as dwells in the person next to you. If he's a believer. And who dwells in the person on the other side of the church if he's a believer. The same spirit is the cement that binds us all together into one. Because he indwells every single one of us. We're one. Because he's one. And he indwells all of us. And draws us together in him. After all, it's his unity. It's called the unity of the spirit. He's the originator and the instigator of it. And he's the one who can help us keep it. And he indwells all of us. And we can experience harmony among ourselves because there's one spirit, one body, one spirit, one hope. That's another reason we can work together in unity and harmony because we have the same goal, the same purpose, the same hope. Paul defines that hope in Titus chapter three and verse or Titus chapter two and verse thirteen. It is that blessed hope, even the great appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the hope of the believer is the second coming of Christ. Seeing the Lord Jesus. Meeting Him and being like Him. 
looking for the Savior who shall change our vile bodies and make them like unto his glorious body. That's our hope. And we're all looking forward to it as Christians. We have that goal and we're looking to that end. And because we all have the same goal and the same hope, we can work together in harmony and love. We're one. Here's the reason for experiential harmony. It's the fact that there's only one body and only one spirit and only one blessed hope. And fourth, only one Lord. That's a good reason to work together. If all of us would submit to one Lord and we're all in agreement with him as to what he wants to do, then obviously we're all going to be in agreement with each other. I mean, that's the way it is in your secular job. If everybody agrees with the boss, I haven't found too many jobs where that's probably the case, but if you were all in agreement with the boss, then you'd all be in agreement with each other. Right? If there's only one Lord and Master, and He is the Lord and Master of our lives, the Sovereign of our being, and we're in agreement with Him, then we're going to work together in love and harmony and unity. One Lord makes it possible for there to be Unity of the Spirit in the bond of love. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith. I'm of the opinion that refers not to saving faith that we exercise, but to the faith, as Jude put it in verse 3 of his little epistle. The faith once for all delivered under the, under the saints. The body of Christian truth. The Christian faith, in other words. Paul referred to that same faith back in Galatians chapter 1. And verse 23, when he said, But they had heard only that he who persecuted us in times past now preaches the faith which he once destroyed. Paul preached the faith, the Christian faith. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Living in, under his lordship and his control. That's the faith. There's only one faith. There are other faiths, but they're not true faiths. There's only one true faith. And that is the Christian faith. One faith. Allows us to work together. Because there is only one faith. Six, there's one baptism. Now I take that to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the act by which we are placed in union with Jesus Christ in His body. And it happens to every believer without exception. Paul said, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. And if it weren't for that baptism of the Holy Spirit, there would not be one body. If there were many baptisms, there would be many bodies. But there's only one spirit and one baptism. And that's why there's only one body. And that's why we can work together in Christian love. One baptism. I'm quite certain this is not water baptism because it's surely not one of those. I can't think of any subject that there's more difference of opinion on in the Christian church today than the subject of water baptism. But there is only one spirit bat baptism. And that's why it so deeply distresses me that there are people who are distorting the truth of the spirit's baptism and making it not a positional truth and something that happens to every believer at the moment of salvation by which he's placed in the body of Christ, but a second work in his life which is required if he wants to reach some higher plane of spiritual elitism, often which is evidenced by speaking in tongues. That is not what the Word of God teaches. And that's causing disunity in the body of Christ. 
And not until we realize there is one baptism for all believers that places us in union with Jesus Christ will there be harmony in that area of doctrine anyway. Because that's what the scripture teaches. One baptism, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And the highest level of unity is because there is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. There's some great truths taught about God right there. He is above all, that's his transcendence. High above, lifted up, lofty, exalted, above his universe and his creatures. Above all, yet through all. Pervading even his universe. Omniscient, omnipresent. Everywhere present in the universe he's made. Through all and in you all. God the Father, through his spirit, indwells every true believer. He is in us. And he binds us together and makes it possible for there to be unity. There's the basis for it. We sat outside of our rooms while the mosquitoes bit us to, <laughs> to uh, have mosquitoes up in the Northeast, you know. And shared with me a heart-rending story of a church that's just about to collapse. It's utterly destroyed because Christians can't get along with each other. We have this built-in unity, and, and yet there's disharmony and disunity among God's life. Why is it? I'll tell you why. Because we haven't put verses 1 to 3 into practice. In most cases, there's not much holiness among Christians, nor meekness, nor long-suffering, nor willingness to put up with one another in love, nor much zeal and effort being given to maintaining the unity of the Spirit. In the bond of peace. Dear Christian friends. It can be different at Emmanuel Faith Community Church. When the spirit of God takes hold of our lives. And we submit to his lordship. And begin to follow the, the prerequisites of his word. God's going to give us a great unity and harmony. That will result in even greater power. Than God has allowed us to experience to this point. Where people shall come to know Jesus Christ. And God's blessing shall be upon us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to help us put these verses into practice in our lives and enjoy the unity which you have provided for us and the power and blessing that will result. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message by Dr. Richard L. Strauss. Copyright 2021. Spiritual Gold, Inc. All rights reserved. For more on this ministry and for additional resources, be sure to visit spiritualgold.org.